This competition is a technological competition. Countries that excel, the country that excels the most in this technological competition, will have enormous technological advantage, not just in space, but on Earth. Everything we did in getting to the moon has had uh, wonderful knock-on effects technologically for this country. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This episode is about the moon race, and that's because this week opened with a rare press conference from China's manned space agency, and then the release of the U.S. Department of State space diplomacy strategy. China's blockbuster announcement was that it is preparing to put Taikonauts on the moon no later than 2030. And something to always keep in mind is the fact that China's space programs are ultimately all controlled by the people's Liberation Army, and China's manned space agency is no different. This announcement follows one NASA made two months ago when it introduced to the world its four Artemis II mission astronauts. The plan is to launch the four toward and beyond the moon in about a year and a half from now. That would be in November 2024. The Artemis II mission is part of NASA's much larger Artemis program, and the point of this space exploration program is to land astronauts on the moon and to to maintain a somewhat continuous presence there, about 385,000 kilometers away. The Artemis II mission is a 10-day crewed test flight of the Space Launch System and the Orion capsule that does not include a lunar landing. That happens on Artemis III, which is behind schedule and likely not going to lift off before 2026. In the meantime, there's going to be a ton of commercial activity. Specifically, U.S. space companies are going to take payloads of NASA equipment up and then pre-position it on the moon. The United Launch Alliance's Vulcan Centaur rocket is supposed to kick off this cargo delivery program this summer. What's a sign of the times, geopolitically, is the fact that ULA is using a new launch system that has U.S.-made Blue Origin engines. In years past, ULA has used the very dependable Russian-made RD-180 engines, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has put a permanent stop to that. To discuss the importance of the U.S. moon missions to the economy and defense, we've got Jim Meyer and Sam Visner of the Aerospace Corporation. But first, there's some more news. This week, Spain signed up to the U.S.-led Artemis Accords, making it the 25th nation to do so. To unwrap this development and the State Department's strategic framework for space diplomacy, I spoke with the downlink regular Namrata Goswami. Here's our conversation. Hi, Namrata. Thank you for making the time to come back on the downlink. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we jump into the policy news this week, take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure, Laura. So my name is Namrata Goswami, and I teach and research uh, space policy and international relations uh, with the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. And I recently co-authored a book called Scramble for the Skies with Peter Garretson. Delighted to be here. 
Now, earlier this week, the State Department released a pretty important policy document. It's called a Strategic Framework for Space Diplomacy. In the press note, which was attributed to Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State, the claim is this is a groundbreaking initiative to advance U.S. global space leadership. Namrata, what are the top one or two takeaways? Is it actually groundbreaking? Thank you for that question. I think it is groundbreaking because if you look at the document, there are two things that stood out for me that clarifies very uh, distinctively what the United States stands for in terms of space exploration and utilization. One is that if you look at the document, the first space goal is to invest in civil and commercial space, by which the United States is making its position clear that it will utilize public-private partnership to promote U.S. standards in terms of multilateral collaboration with like-minded nations and partners when it comes to space exploration and utilization. The second most important thing that stood out for me was the insistence and absolute clarity as to the critical importance of national security when it comes to space uh, exploration and use. So the document very clearly identifies that U.S. space efforts internationally is also going to be an enabler of national security, security dialogues with partner nations as to what could constitute threats to uh, space-based systems. So those are the two things that were very uh, clear and groundbreaking in my perspective. As the U.S. is in a leadership position, which means most of its allies and partners follow its lead when it comes to international policy, the U.S.-led Artemis Accords, well, that's a case in point. And this week, Spain became the 25th nation to sign up. And just to get everyone on the same page here, the Accords are a U.S. initiative to, in a sense, create allies in the space domain for exploration and exploitation of the moon to bring everyone in alignment you know, on space behavior from Earth orbit outward to the moon and even beyond. So, my question, and there actually is one, what does this signal to the U.S.'s traditional allies like NATO and even more specifically to those nations that have signed up to the Accords? I think if you look at the, the document that we are talking about, there is a very specific section on the Artemis Accords as well. And so what it actually signals through the language that has been used is that the United States is going to forward three important key principles when it comes to the Artemis Accord. One is that it is going to establish a rules-based lunar order, if I may, in which uh, partner nations and those who have signed up will be uh, enablers in meeting standards. The second important thing is that the United States will ensure that the Artemis Accords and countries that sign up will meet the United States obligations to the treaties that the U.S. has signed, for example, the Outer Space Treaty. And then finally, what it signals to the nations and countries that are in fact interested in joining the Artemis Accord is that the United States will create a regulatory framework that would enable space resource utilization when it comes to the moon. And the Artemis Accord is a way to frame that discussion and to enable it. So how do you think this framework is being received in Beijing and Moscow? I mean, it's pretty specifically calls out China and Russia, doesn't it? 
Yes, it does. In fact, there is a section on challenges where the uh, document lists the space investment and development of the PRC, the People's Republic of China, as a challenge. And that uh, it also specifically states that China is working towards replacing United States leadership in space by 2045. It also mentions Russia, especially Russia's investment in counter space capability. And so what it signals to China and Russia is that here the United States is making very clear that it will constitute a rules-based international order and that will be promoted by diplomatic means, both at the level of the United Nations as well as through bilateral agreements. It will also take leadership when it comes to demonstrating to other nations some of the responsible behavior, for example, uh, testing anti-satellite weapons, building counter space capabilities. And finally, I think the document makes it very clear to China and Russia that the United States now views space as a very critical component of national security and international security and has made its position and staked its claim for that leadership based on democratic values absolutely clear. You know, there were a number of points that also caught my eye, but two in particular I think were interesting for those nations sitting on the fence. One was, and I quote, the United States remains the global space partner of choice. And the other is some governments may not recognize the vulnerabilities of increased intermingling with competitors' space industries. If you're a nation that hasn't yet signed up with the Artemis Accords or China's International Lunar Research Station Cooperation Organization, what's the takeaway? What's the message? I think the message is, again, clear in terms of diplomatic engagement on behalf of the United States by the State Department. And the State Department does see itself as a very critical enabler of rules-based international order. So basically what it's telling those countries that might consider joining, for example, the Belt and Road uh, Initiative Spatial Information Corridor that also includes China's uh, industry, for example, that that kind of intermingling might result in them inadvertently supporting an authoritarian civil-military-fused space order. And the United States takes it upon itself as a responsibility to educate and to ensure that nations know that when they are considering such options. And I think this is important because if you look at, the, at how the world is constituted today, the BRI has about 154 member nations. Some of them are important countries, for example, in Europe, like Luxembourg, Austria, Italy, and uh, countries, for example, in Latin America. And so I think this is a very critical signaling from the part of the United States that while being aware of that, the United States wants to educate countries as to what could be the consequences of such intermingling. Nemrata, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Laura. Now, because exploring the moon and conducting science there is really a precursor to commercial activities, the Aerospace Corporation held a cislunar briefing about some of the dynamics there, such as the physics challenges, the technology challenges, and the geopolitical situation. To give you a wee primer on the cislunar region, I sat down with Jim Myers and Sam Visner. Here's our conversation. Hello, Jim, Sam. Thank you both for coming on the Downlink podcast. Hi. 
Thanks, Laura, for having us. This is Sam Visner. I'm a tech fellow with the Aerospace Corporation, and I'm also the uh, vice chair of the board of directors of the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Hi, Laura. My name is Jim Myers. I'm senior vice president of the Civil Systems Group at Aerospace Corporation. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Okay, well then, let's talk about cislunar or the lunar economy. And it's probably best to bring the audience in first by discussing just where. You know, the three-dimensional location we're actually talking about. So, Jim, where is the cislunar region of space and what's in it? So, at aerospace, we think of cislunar as the region that's about 500,000 kilometers from Earth, and think of it as the sphere that encompasses that 500,000 kilometers. And uh, it includes the moon and the Earth and then any objects that are in that space. And it also goes beyond the moon a bit too, does it not? Yeah, so the moon, depending on uh, how you think about orbits, the moon is about 380,000 kilometers from the Earth. So yes, it goes beyond the moon. And isn't there also a volume to this, which is kind of a weird thing when you think about volume, you think about weight, and you think about things in it. But when we're talking about a volume, it, it's kind of like a container, I guess you say. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you were to explain what the volume is of that and, say, compare it to things that are in our near-Earth orbits, you know, from LEO to MEO to GEO being geosynchronous orbit, I mean, what, what are we talking about in terms of, like, the volume of space? Okay. Okay. So think about the 500,000 kilometer as a radius that if you replicated that radius, you'd create this spherical object that would encompass the Earth and go beyond. But I'll give you some real-life objects to give it scale. So if the Earth was a small, maybe slightly larger than a BB, and the geostationary orbit around the Earth was a racquetball, then this spherical space that we're talking about for cislunar would be the size of a beach ball. Jim, you also said today here at this meeting that we're having, you know, at the National Press Club, you said that there was a space race on and you know, that's pretty clear when we're talking about near-Earth orbits and national defense and commerce and China. But what's the state of play on the moon? Okay, in, in terms of uh, other national actors, uh, we know that uh, China has both put objects onto the moon and has a satellite that provides uh, relay, communications relay, on the far side of the moon. We also know that China has been public, even most recently as the last couple of days, about establishing both the ability to land astronauts on the moon by 2030, as well as putting a sustained lunar presence in place on the moon in the 2030s. China has been the most vocal about that uh, with the idea that they've also said by 2045, they would be the leader in space in all respects, uh, nationally, as a national actor. So they are the most prominent player that we're tracking today. May I pick up on that? This is Sam. Thank you, Jim. Um, I look at this in, in a similar dimension, but let me add a couple of points that, that, that I think are, are also worth considering. This competition is a technological competition. Countries that excel 
the country that excels the most in this technological competition will have enormous technological advantage, not just in space, but on Earth. Everything we did in getting to the moon has had uh, wonderful knock-on effects technologically for this country, and it has helped ensure that we uh, retain technological leadership. This space competition is a competition between countries that are trying to achieve a dominant position in space. There are other aspects to this competition. China, Russia, those are countries that operate principally without partnerships, except in this case for each other. This is also an opportunity for us to extend our partnerships on Earth to partnerships in space with many other countries. Uh, Spain just signed the Artemis Accords, and many countries want to follow our lead in a collective effort to explore the moon, to explore cislunar space, to go beyond cislunar space. And this is also an opportunity for us to extend our global leadership collectively. And lastly, we are going to have to decide whose values and whose systems are really going to play a role as we move beyond the Earth. Will it be an autocratic one, and in which the freedoms we take for granted are not enjoyed? Or will it be one that, that really encompasses our values and our freedoms? And that also is part of this competition. So those are three aspects of the competition that I think are important. Well, but what's so special about the moon, let's say, economically? I mean, NASA touts that the missions it's planning, the ones that are part of opening up the moon and Mars, you know, they've generated about $20 billion in economic output and almost 94,000 jobs. Many of them are, are high-paying jobs. And there are roughly two dozen U.S. companies that have focused their business cases on establishing commercial activity on the moon. And that's great and all. But really, what's the moon's economic promise. The U.S. government thinks it's a big deal. The Aerospace Corporation thinks it's a big deal. China and Russia definitely think it's a big deal. Well, how big is it? What's the potential here, or, or perhaps I should rather say there? Well, I think it's, it, it would be difficult to put an exact number on the economic value of returning to the moon and, and operating in the cislunar environment and going beyond it. And I think, Laura, it's also never really clear what are going to be the economic effects of any technological revolution? Who knew what the information technology and computer revolution would bring us as the first PCs were being made available and the first smartphones were being available? Instead, the technological revolution enables things that we don't even anticipate when that revolution occurs, and that's certainly true now. So I think many of the things that will happen economically as we move into the cislunar environment are things we don't even anticipate and may not even have been able to imagine at this point. But clearly some things will work. First, we're going to create a lot of high-paying jobs. We will create new high-tech, high-spec manufacturing. We will create it both here and in space through things like, like, like uh, uh, space-based assembly and, and manufacturing or ISAM, as Jim noted earlier today. Um, we will certainly find minerals that we can mine and exploit. Um, we will certainly find that we will enrich the terrestrial environment as we do more remote sensing from space. And as we move to, as we move to the moon and find additional resources, scientific research, the possibilities of additional additive manufacturing in a low-G environment, I think we will see uncounted amounts of money, accounted economic benefit, um, to our country and to, to the countries that work with us, you know, using the Artemis Accord as the sort of basic framework for it. 
What that number will be, I don't know. But I think that's a little bit like asking, you know, how much, what will be the return on investment once we have the first PCs out there? In fact, that's revolutionized our economy. And I think revolutionizing our economy may be one of the potentials that moving into this new cislunar environment will give us. Uh, it's Jim here, Laura. I, I would echo all the things that Sam has said. And I would add, uh, in terms of analogy, I don't think anybody predicted what the internet has become. So uh, that was a, uh, a novel technology, and now look at how ubiquitous it is today. So we don't know what the moon and Mars and beyond offers. Um, we do know it offers minerals, as Sam referenced, the moon does. It's got um, rare earth minerals, allegedly, helium-3. Helium-3, water. Water. Right? So that affords the opportunity to actually generate power and operate on the moon and, of course, generate fuel so you can go uh, from the moon to the next destination. Uh, so very exciting and hard to put a number on it. Uh, but I like to think about it in terms of what the Internet did and where we might go uh, in terms of a new economy, starting with the moon and then beyond. Do you think the first trillionaire will be made on the moon? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> put, put him, uh, as, long as, we're, as long as I'm in his will. <laughs> well, kidding aside, though, you know, isn't there also a national defense angle here? I mean, I've heard more than once, more than twice, probably half a dozen to a dozen times, some folks refer to the moon as the new high ground. Yeah, so uh, it's Jim here again, and I'll, I'll make reference to some comments that uh, Lieutenant General Shaw made at Space Symposium last month. But at the, at the outset, what I would say is Space Force has as a mission requirement to organize, train, and equip. That is a, a typical thing that you see from our armed forces, and then to protect and defend. So now in space, that applies. And um, what General Shaw said at, at Space Symposium last week, and I will um, quote him, he talked about cislunar space, and he said, in quotes, this is our relevant operational space. So that was a signal that the U.S. government recognizes that cislunar is an area that needs to be protected and defended, uh, and will do so. Uh, now, Sam made reference to the Artemis Accords, and so and Department of State just as recently as yesterday released their strategic framework for space diplomacy. So as the U.S. does with all things, what we endeavor to do is partner with other nations, uh, as the Artemis Accords talks, talk about, and create a sustainable cislunar ecosystem. Um, related uh, to the question that you asked, I, I would note that efforts to build essentially collective defense in space, that's largely, it, that's largely conveyed by the new State Department framework that was released, I think, uh, on, on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. The Space ISAC has put in place, the Space Information Sharing and Analysis Center has put in place a new cislunar affinity group, which is looking at the security and resilience of systems that will be placed, that are starting to be placed in the cislunar, in the cislunar environment. Both the Department of State 
and certainly aerospace and the space ISAC believe that one of the advantages that the United States has in its endeavors in space, and this will certainly convey, Laura, to the cislunar environment, is the fact that we act with partners. We act with partners who are technologically and economically uh, well-equipped to work with us, um, whose support we need and whom we want to support. So the concept of collective defense for space systems, um, which is certainly conveyed by the State Department framework and the use of partnerships, is something that the space ISAC believes. And I think one of the things you heard today is that it's not just the United States that's, that's going to be operating in, the, in that environment. The best thing we can do now is to use the Artemis Accords and use our basic system of collective defense and collective security to start to rally our allies and partners to make this a safe and secure environment. In April, China unveiled its construction plans for its lunar base, and it established the International Lunar Research Station Cooperation Organization. And surprise, surprise, Russia has joined this. Now, it's just a two-country organization, but isn't this development really China's answer to the Artemis Accords? Isn't this also a soft power competition? Well, certainly, in a way, it's a soft power competition. China and Russia certainly see the role in, their role in space as one that, that builds prestige, that builds global standing. And therefore, to be first to have some kind of advantage in space system is something that they would think to would demonstrate to other countries that their system is in some ways superior. But let me go back to an earlier comment I made. You know, that's that's sort of fine, but that's fleeting. We went to the moon and then what happened? You know, the the Russians, you know, and 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 we competed in space and that was a race that sort of ended. We're not using that term. It's a competition. And here what I would say is that real soft power will be the technological innovation that occurs because of space, the economic um, advantages that accrue because of space, the demonstration of the use of space for remote sensing, for, if you read the State Department framework, things that talk about uh, using space systems to identify the causes of and combat global climate change. So I see this as a way of exercising soft power in a very positive way, one that encompasses our allies, encompasses technological innovation, encompasses economic benefit, and encompasses improving the standard of living and quality of life around the world. You know, remote sensing to help us improve agriculture. And we'll bring these technologies, we'll probably refine them and make them more powerful in, in, in the cislunar environment. So I personally think that, yes, soft power, and I think over time, that soft power will accrue more to us than to our to our competitors. It's Jim here again, Laura. And I would add um, that the Artemis Accords now have 25 nations. So it, it's a clear signal that the United States is leading in this, in this way. And I would also add that NASA and the Department of State, these are civil agencies. These are civil organizations. This is our effort to really establish lasting global partnerships, that's not the case for China and Russia. There's one thing, though, that you know I'd like to bring up with you two gentlemen that isn't exactly discussed today here at the event, but I think is really quite apropos. And that's the fact that a lot of people don't 
for instance, say, you know, and understand, you know, what the U.S. Space Force is for. And sometimes when they think of NASA and they, they think of the billions of dollars that's being spent for, you know, the Artemis missions and for other, you know, space missions even, you know, even ones that even monitor, you know, our planet as being outrageous. Right. And we've had this whole like, you know, debt limit thing, you know, this bust up on the Hill and at the White House, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on money and value and how we're using it. What can we do better to communicate the value of going to the moon? Well, this is Jim again. I'll go first and then I'll turn it over to Sam. Um, in, in terms of thinking about how to communicate the value of going to the moon, let me go back to something you said about recognizing the value of NASA um, in, a, in a difficult budgetary environment. Uh, NASA does so many things in space. Uh, if you remember most recently the launch of James Webb Space Telescope, the deployment, and now the amazing science that's possible. Part of what James Webb does, much like Hubble did, much like the, the moon landings of Apollo in the 60s, is excite our citizens, especially our youth. Get our youth interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, and create the next generation of scientists and inventors and innovators. You can't put a value on that. So that's one aspect of what NASA does, is they do amazing science, they enable uh, information to be made available to a broad range of people so more science can happen. Uh, then NASA does all of this work uh, around weather and Earth observation, as you mentioned, Laura. People may not realize that the weather app that you have on your phone that gives you amazing amount, uh, an amazing amount of precision, that was not possible until recent years. This is all based on the work that NASA and NOAA have done over the years to make it more and more, make their satellites more and more capable, deploy more of them, take all this data, turn it into pretty sophisticated models that generate information that goes to your phone. So there's another example. Uh, and then of course, NASA does exploration and that gets more to your question. And NASA is leading the nation and leading the world with the Artemis program. And putting a value on that, uh, I think, goes back to some of the things we've said. To the extent that we, via Artemis, we get into cislunar space with our astronauts, we get to the moon, we establish a presence on the moon, and then we operate from there. All the technologies that Sam talked about and the, the breakthroughs that come with that, much like going back to Apollo, um, you can't put a value on it. It, it's, it. it probably is the next great economy that we'll benefit from. Uh, and I'll turn it over to Sam for other thoughts. Hang on one second, though, because I want to sort of reiterate what I'm trying to get after. You know, I'm biased, right? I love space. I see the value in space. I see the value in space economically. I see it, you know, in terms of national defense. I see it in terms of our international diplomatic efforts. You know, we see this, you know, sitting here in this room. We're all on the same page. But the thing is, how do we communicate that to the middle schoolers, to the high schoolers, so that they will understand the value of space, get excited about what's possible in space, and actually join us on this journey? 
This is Sam. That's a, a great question. Uh, let me go back to the, to, let me answer, let me address that question, but let me back up for a minute. As much as space missions individually cost, space is actually becoming cheap, and in some ways it's almost a bargain. You can do things in space you can't do anywhere else. You can build a global 5G backplane in space. You can do remote sensing in space. You can do uh, position navigation and timing in space. You can do space-based manufacturing only in space. You can only explore the moon in space. We're not going to be able to do that unless human beings and machines go back to the moon. And in a way, it's becoming a bargain. I took a look at some data the other day that showed the cost per kilogram to orbit. In other words, what it costs to put a kilo or a pound of stuff up in orbit. That number since the 1960s has come down by two or three orders of magnitude in constant dollars. I was looking at 2021 dollars. So the first thing I would tell people is if you're interested in space, think about your town, your community, your school of whether or not you want to put something up there. And what can you put up there? Well, the other story is not just that it costs less to put a pound or a kilo of stuff in space, but the capability per kilo or pound has come has gone has gone way up. So the cost has gone down, and the and you can put one or two or three unit or small satellites, nanosats, cubesats, microsats up there. So one reason one reason one can be excited about space is the fact that it's becoming more affordable, and what you can put up there is going to be more capable. And the technology that, that is making this possible will only, only, Laura, advance as we move to the cislunar environment because the technological requirements, we're going to need artificial intelligence to be able to deal with situations that there's too much latency between the Earth and the moon. So we'll want AI to improve the cybersecurity and the resilience and the self-correcting aspects of those systems. And that kind of research, I think, is probably already underway. As we do that, these systems become more capable per pound, per kilo, and even cheaper to get up there per pound or kilo. So what I would tell somebody who's in middle school is, you know, it, it's interesting to be excited by space. Go and sit down with some of your classmates and think of what you'd like to do there because it's getting possible for you to do it. Yeah, and, and maybe, Jim, again, maybe instead of talking about space as a frontier, think about it as a market that's where we're headed, just like Sam talked about. It's being democratized, accessible to just about anybody who wants to go. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. 